If you would turn your Bibles, please, to verse 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. We are talking of this morning about breaking free. Breaking free from temptation. There is no way that temptation will ever go away. God never promised that. In fact, is it is a given. You will be tempted, tried, and tested. No doubt about that. The real key is, what do you do with it? In fact, I will tell you right ahead of time that wherever the word uh, temptation or trial or test is used in the New Testament, you don't know which one it is. In fact, is if it's happening in your life right now, you don't know which one it is. The only way you will know is when you come out the other end and look back and you'll say, that was a test. That was a trial. No, that was a temptation. And sometimes it's all three. But the real important thing is, it doesn't matter which one it is, there's only one answer. So this morning, we're going to be looking at breaking free, and we're going to face it in this way. Three facts about temptation, that's where you're turned to now. Three categories of temptation, that's where we're going to be looking. And then we're going to end with three areas of temptation in marriage and actually in, in dating and in marriage also. I believe the greatest um, problem that's facing human beings always has been and continues today to be temptation. Uh, And it isn't simply a circumstance. It is a heart issue. You can be tempted if you were in a straitjacket with a blindfold on, with earmuffs on, so you couldn't hear anything. You could still be tempted because it's a heart issue. That's the main thing that we need to know. And I will tell you that almost all temptations come in this direction. A legitimate need met in an illegitimate way. That's not 100%, but that's really close. Because we all have needs. And there are God-given ways of meeting those needs. But when we try to meet them on our own, that's when sin comes in and that's when it comes out. There are those desires that we all have in our marriages for our families and those types of things. For example, for men in particular, uh, they desire respect and admiration from their wives. They, they desire companionship. And, and just give me the facts. They desire a physical relationship that makes them feel close. Uh, they desire uh, domestic res- um, uh, support, submission, and uh, a partner, someone working together with them. Support, if you will. I can show you all those from the Bible. We've talked about those in the past and will in the future. Women desire a relationship, affection. They desire love, communication, conversation. That is what makes them feel close. They desire that intimacy of companionship. They desire and crave security and stability and safety. They desire a commitment to the family, to be honored. They, they desire financial support, and they, they, they crave a, a trust, an openness, and an honesty. And both of them together want peace. i got to tell you, I have seen people that, that try to fill all of these in a wrong way. But that peace, uh, I call it serenity, that goes with all the other S's, but it's we want to just be here without the tension, without the, all the grief, without the arguing, the yelling, the screaming, and the, the, the ready to kill each other. 
That's what we desire. Satan knows what God has put in us. Satan is an opportunist, and he will exploit anything, anytime, anywhere to get us away from God. So this morning, I want to turn our attention now to those vulnerable places where Satan gets his foot in the door. Now, I will tell you that while we may be vulnerable in these areas, there is never, let me repeat that, never an excuse for falling or choosing to go by the way of that temptation. It just never is. You may be vulnerable, it may be easy, Your spouse may make it very easy for you to go that direction, but there's never a biblical excuse for going that direction. So while uh, those needs and desires may make you vulnerable, there's no excuse. And that's what we're going to see this morning. So the the first three facts about temptation. It says, now these things happen to them as an example. This is verse 11, I'm sorry, of um, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the age have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. In other words, if you are sitting there, this sermon's not for me because I got it under control. It is absolutely for you. Because you are not exempt. No one is. And so he makes that clear. And the examples he's talking about are the ones that came before this from the Old Testament of how the Israelites failed over and over again and went off their own direction. And then it goes on to say in verse 13, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. Point number one is that We are not alone in our struggles. Here's what happens. Every time we're in a tight spot, you know what we do? Nobody's ever had it as bad as me. Wrong. Plenty of other people have. The fact is, no matter what is happening to you right now and how tempting it may seem and how easy it would be to go the wrong way, you are simply in the crowd. Because it's common to man. But, but you don't understand me. Yes, he does. And he knows that you're vulnerable. Absolutely. So your circumstance is not any tougher than anybody else's. Wow, that's pretty harsh. You're exactly right. Because guess what? There's no poor me, there's no pity me in this passage. It is simply as common to man. Everybody else could fall in that same trap. Everybody else has a circle. Oh, not identical, because they're not you. But that variety of temptation, it's common to man. In fact, as I'll prove that in a little while when we look at the the temptation of Jesus. But also, as I pointed out earlier, this word temptation is not defined very specifically in the New Testament. You see, when something tough comes my way, I don't know, is that God testing me? Test is to, so I know what's inside. Oh, he already knows my heart. He knows my thoughts. So he doesn't have to do it for him. He needs to test us so we know what we're like. A a trial is simply to make us stronger. Think someone who is uh, training for an athletic contest. Or to take a test. It is the trial. It's hard. 
but I want to get stronger, smarter, wiser. And then there is flat-out temptation. Temptation never comes from God. God himself is not tempted, nor does he tempt anyone according to James chapter 1. That comes from Satan. But I got to tell you, when it comes my way, I'm not sure which one it is. Even in the middle of it sometimes, I'm not sure which one it is. But it will come. And so, you're not alone. You cannot just pity yourself and say and make excuses is nobody understands. Nobody knows what I'm going through. That is absolutely not true biblically nor practically. Second point is, and this is the key, it's right smack in the middle of this verse, and God is faithful. Underline that in your Bible if you do that kind of thing. Who will not allow you to be tempted, tried or tested, beyond what you're able. So it doesn't matter if it's a trial, test, or a temptation. God says he is still in control. He knows you and will not allow anything to come your way that you cannot handle with his help. That's the key. Remember, God is faithful. On your own, you will fail every test. On your own, you will fail the trials. You you just won't make it. You You don't cut it. And on your own, you will fall for the temptation. Only with a faithful God, only drawing near and close to him, can you survive any of them. Every one of us is vulnerable to everything that comes our way. We are indeed sinful from the heart. We practice that. Our mind goes that way very quickly. And we will fall. But God is faithful. That's the key thing in this whole thing. He is faithful. On our own, we will be overwhelmed by whatever comes our direction. And the third thing about temptation is the last part of the verse. But with the temptation, trial, or test, will provide the way of escape. Oh, good, he promises I I don't have to go through it. That's not what it says. Remember, if there's a way of escape, it means you're already in the midst of it. You don't need to escape if the danger isn't there and real. But notice what it says, that you may be able to endure it. I, I always get really agitated when people take part of the Bible. Oh, he'll provide a way of escape and there's whole theologies based on I never have to suffer. I never have to go through tough times. I never have to make hard decisions. I never need to resist sin because God will provide a way of escape. That's an exit. One way out. That's why I put that up. Maybe I should have had an exit sign, but I put a one-way sign because God only provides us one way and that's that you may be able to endure it. Wow. That's not what I want to hear. It says that it literally means to bear, to bear under it, to bear it on your shoulder. When I was a kid, we, we saw my dad carry a 100-pound feed bag on his shoulder. You know, we're, we're little tykes at that point. Man, a man, a farmer can do that. I'll tell you what, we would, we would do our best. We would strive to get that feed bag on our, uh, so we could carry to the chicken house. Man, when we could do that, we're men now. You know what? Nobody carried it for us, but if you're going to bear it on your shoulder, you've conquered it. 
You can actually take it. You can go with it. And that's what he gives us. Notice, no easy ways out. He says, you know what? I never promised I'll take these test trials and temptations away. They're always going to be there. But guess what? They don't have to buckle your knees. Yeah, that's it. That's temptation. It's there. Get used to it. Admit it. Understand that you can't do it on your own. But understand that God is faithful. That's the key thing you need to know about whatever comes your direction. God is faithful. And he ends with this. Look at verse 14. This looks really odd when you look at it at first. Therefore, so on the basis of what he just said, that's what we just looked at. My beloved, flee from idolatry. Whoa! You know what he's saying? Is that when we fall for those things, when we don't trust God, when we allow those things to overwhelm us and we go that direction, we go the wrong direction instead of the right direction, that's idolatry. We have allowed something else to get in the way, to take the place of, and become our primary focus. The moment you go into temptation and you yield to it, you now have another God. Man, I don't care if you've been a Christian all your life. You still are allowing something else to be the focus of your life. You have allowed the temptation to take over your life. It's exactly, it's idolatry. Pretty harsh verse. But I got to tell you, one of the greatest, most comforting verses in the Bible also is simply this. I don't have to buckle. I can do the right thing. I can go the right way. Now, I told you there are three kinds of temptation. It's a little slow, okay? There are three kinds of temptations that are in the world. These things will stop us in our tracks. They're found in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. So now he gives us these three kinds of temptations. Here he calls them the world. The world system. That system that we all live in. I've taken the uh, opportunity here to put a few things. I hope, you, I hope those are uh, big enough that you can read them. But I put a whole bunch of things in a, a small package here, hopefully. But the temptation itself is, uh, comes in three areas in the world. I want to meet my own needs my own way. I want to be self-sufficient. I don't need God and I don't need you. I can decide what I want. The second one is, I want what is not rightfully mine. That comes down to selfishness instead of self-sufficient. Greed and covetousness. And then the last one, the pride of life. I want to be more than I am. I want the power, the privilege, and the position. I am self-centered. I want it for me whether it's mine or not. Whether I deserve it or not, that's what I want. And there are three places in the Bible where these are clearly, clearly spelled out. The first one comes right at the first temptation. And uh, when Satan comes, he shows her the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and said, Hey, Eve, it's good for food. It will satisfy you. Legitimate need. Food. Legitimate. 
In fact is, it is really good tasting fruit. Except God said, no, do not eat of this tree. Okay? So, was the wrong eat, is eating wrong? The answer is no, but eating from that tree is wrong. And so, uh, it is satisfying yourself, doing it your own way. I'm going to satisfy my needs, and I really don't care what somebody else says. I don't care what my spouse says. I have physical needs. I'm going to have them met. Uh, it's a delight to the eyes. It's something that I want beyond what is my possession. God had told them, stay away from the whole thing. You have plenty of other things to do, but guess what? It is the exact same thing that you know ever since you were a kid. Your parents said, don't touch that, and what did you want to do? You wanted to touch it. It's just the way it is. The law says don't drive through the stop sign, so we drive through the stop sign. We get away, try to get away. And then it's desirable to make one wise. In fact, is Satan said, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Wow. Hey, you can be somebody you're not. See, he's God, we're not. And Satan said, hey, you want to be like God? You'll know good and evil? Hey, eat. Don't listen to God. So that's where it starts out. And then Jesus comes on the scene. He is tempted in those exact three uh, areas. Satan comes along. He's been fasting for 40 days. He's hungry. He says, turn these stones into bread. I know what his answer is because Jesus says there's something more important than simply eating and meeting my physical needs. He said, the second one is throw yourself down from the pinnacle of the temple, going beyond God's will. God never commanded him to do that. The pinnacle of the temple, by the way, is not the peak of a roof. You may have heard this before, but it was the outside retaining wall of the courtyard of the temple in Jerusalem. It was 150 feet from the very top of it down into the Kindred Valley. Now, I got to tell you, God did not tell Jesus to put on some display and do things just for being spectacular. You know, he, he, didn't, he didn't go beyond, he wasn't supposed to go beyond God's will because he was following the Father's will. And then Satan comes along and says, hey, you know what? If you worship me, I will give you all the kingdoms of the world, the kingdoms without the cross. I can shortcut. I can give you something that you don't have. I can give it to you without the cost. That's what he says. Now, we get to John, uh, 1 John chapter 2, verse 16. The lust of the flesh. Simply fulfilling, as we already saw. Oh, those things are legitimate needs. The lust of the eyes. This is not, oh, I need this or I need that. But this is something that doesn't belong to me. And the pride of life, as I already said, it's I want the power, the privilege, and the position without what it required to do that. There are plenty of people in marriage that want to be seen as a good husband, a good wife, a good parent, but they don't want to put in the work. They don't want to put in the sacrifice, the time, whatever is needed. What is the solution to each one of these? First of all, Jesus answered, uh, and all of these come from what Jesus answered. He says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. There's something even more important than eating or drinking or being comfortable. My own basic needs. Nothing wrong with basic needs, but he quotes from the Old Testament. So these are not new solutions. He quotes from the Old Testament. 
And you notice every time he was tempted, he quoted the Bible. Very important. If I get that much time for the end of the sermon, you'll hear it again. Living for God's glory instead. Because he said, uh, you know what? You uh, will throw you down and he'll give his angels charge over you. He said, you should not tempt, test the Lord your God. Now, what Satan did was, by the way, misquote scripture. I don't have it up there, but Psalm 91, Satan partially quotes it. He'll give his angels charge over you to guard you in all your ways. He leaves that section out, to guard you in all your ways. Because he was saying, oh, well, you can do anything you want, and God has to keep you from hurting your foot. That's not what it says. See, faith is never based on, okay, I'm going to do whatever I want and then God has to bail me out. That is not faith. That's tempting or testing God. And he says, thou shalt not do that. And then the last one, he said, you shall worship and serve the Lord your God, not the things of this world. So when we deal with these areas of temptation, we need to understand that there is a solution. I never have an excuse for going my own direction. God has not given us that opportunity. Now, there are, I believe, three areas that come into temptation and um, cause us problems in our marriage. Those are the ones we're going to look at now. These three areas of temptation, I call them, I, I, I put three different terms. The first one is substitutes. These are trying to meet legitimate marital needs or desires in a wrong way. For example, adultery, immorality, pornography, flirting, fantasies, romance, uh, stories, all those kinds of things. In other words, all those things that give us an inkling of what marriage should be, but they're not the real thing. I call them substitutes. And they surely get in the way. They promise the same results of, of the intimate relationships of marriage, but are cheap imitations of the real things. They may thrill, and usually do, but they do not provide the satisfaction that God intended for marriage. They tend to be unloving. In fact, they are unloving because they're self-centered and lustful. They tend to grow like a disease and consume more and more thoughts and time and money. They steal away our hearts and our loyalty to our spouse because we're really pursuing a fantasy, something that lands up being a disaster. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and I'm going to do this very quickly because I'm running out of time already. But it says that we are not to act in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. And that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter. Transgress means to cross the boundary line. Trespassing. No trespassing. Do not enter. And the second one is very much like it. It says don't defraud. Don't take advantage. Let's face it. If someone is close to you, it's easy to take advantage of them. To take them for granted. God says, don't do it. And I could go on and look at a whole lot of other things, but God tells us we have duties and responsibilities and expectations that we are to exercise toward our spouse. 
The second one I'd like to look at, I call parasites. These are things, and you know what a parasite is, something that latches onto something else and just sucks the life out of them. Parasites of all kinds. You've got them inside of you, whether you know it or not, you've got some. Everybody's got a few of them, and life's got them. They tend to be in the areas of um, addictions, abuse, alcohol, drugs, gambling, all those kinds of things. Because what they are is they're not those moral issues about husband and wife and moral things, sexually moral things, but they're anything in life that simply sucks out the life of the marriage. doesn't matter what it is. I just named a few. It could be lots of other things. But they uh, short-circuit the ability to love and to care for the other person. They diminish the quality of the marriage. And that's what happens if you see a plant or an animal that is full of parasites. The, life quali- the quality of life of that plant or animal goes downhill very, very quickly. And it can be anything that distracts us away, like I said, any kind of addiction or any kind of abuse wherein the critical or hitting or it doesn't matter what it is, any kind of abusing that relationship just sucks the life out of the marriage. And then the last one, and you think, ah, oh, this one's not so bad. I call them detours. Detours are those things where we look at it and say, well, these are legitimate things at times. Not all of them are, by the way. But those that tend to be lazy, unthankful, ungrateful, workaholics, those that are self-centered. But it also can be lying and lack of openness and the lack of honesty. All of these things, it promises to you, you can do your own thing and you can get away with it. You don't need to really answer to your spouse for these things. It's your business. But at the same time, they are detouring you away from and steering us away from the most important things in this life. Now, the most important, obviously, is a relationship with God. But that second most important relationship in all the world. Remember, it's not you and your kids. That is a secondary, temporary relationship. They're always your kids. But hopefully, someday, they're moving out. The one that's left is your spouse. That's important in anything. Kids can be a detour. I've seen families that treat their kids like little idols. And they zap the marriage. They detour the marriage. Mom and dad one day are going to wake up, look at each other and say, Who are you? The kids aren't here to define who we are anymore. So just keep that in mind. Now, how does it work? How do we fall into these things? Here's what I believe. I should have put another three on there because this is three also. One step at a time. Nobody walks out the door and says, I'm going to commit adultery. Doesn't happen that way. It is one justification. But you don't know what they did to me. You don't know how they treat me. You just don't understand. Poor me, pity me. And the last one, and this one here, make sure you don't miss this one. I did that a little bit, and I didn't get caught, so I guess it's okay. I got away with it this time. That's how it goes downhill. And I'm telling you, once it starts, it snowballs, and they all do. 
every, every one of them goes that direction. So what do we do? How, do? how do we deal with this whole thing? I have some conclusions. I've got exactly four minutes, three minutes to do it. How do I break th- free? Because that's the title. How do I break through? Break free from these temptations that can very easily... First of all, pray that God will keep you from temptation. Go back to the disciples' model prayer. You call it the Lord's Prayer. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. God never will lead you wrong. Go to Him. Number two, make a covenant with yourself ahead of time. Especially in the areas where you are weak. Job said it this way, I've made a covenant with my eyes. I will not gaze at a virgin. By the way, that may not be your problem. You need to make a covenant. A vow to God. Lord, this is what I will not do. And stick with it. Number three, always look for a way out. I'm not going to spend the time. That's a whole other sermon. But there are times you stand and fight. And there are times you turn and run. Look for the nearest exit. Don't enter there, but go the other direction. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Flee youthful lusts, but pursue righteousness and faith and love and peace with those who call upon the name of the Lord from a pure heart. Look for the nearest exit. Head for it now. Not two steps from now, because two steps from now, you're already on the slippery slide. As soon as you know it, if it's the TV, if it's the gambling, if it's the immoral thoughts, I don't care what it is. Head the other direction. Make a choice ahead of time. Divert your thoughts. It tells us in Philippians chapter 4. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence, if anything worthy of praise... Let your mind dwell on these things. If you're thinking wrong, you will act wrong. When you know you're thinking wrong, start looking a different direction. If it's gambling, you need to start thinking about something different. If it's abuse, you need to think different. If it is immorality, you need to think different. It doesn't matter what it is, you need to think and when you, when you think about it, very positive thing here. It's not the power of positive thinking, but it is indeed positive, biblical, spiritual, godly thinking. And we need to do it. And last, because all of us do it. When you sin and fall, you need to confess your sin to God. You need to confess to those, particularly your spouse, who are affected you need to evaluate after you've done that why you did that, what, what steps got you in that direction. And then you need to make some choices to eliminate those things. Uh, somebody called it radical amputation. There are things you just need to. You know what? If you know it's that place that gets you going that direction, you stay away from that place. If you know it's hanging out with those people, you don't hang out with those people. If there is a thing that gets you in trouble. You don't fellowship with that thing because that's what you need to do. And then lastly, you need to start again because God says it, and I'm going to end with this. 
It comes from Lamentations chapter 3, verse 21. This I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. The Lord's loving kindness in kindnesses indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I have hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the person who seeks him. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you're a faithful God. Lord, we started with that and we end with that. You're faithful in times of temptation, trial and test. In our marriages, you remain faithful even when we're not. You're faithful when our spouse is not faithful. Lord, we thank you that we can depend upon you. And Lord, we know that you're stronger, you're wiser. You have a right direction. We do not. So Lord, always keep our thoughts, our prayers, our hearts, our words and our actions in conformity with that, the faithful God that you are. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Go with God.